Everybody does this, whether you're conscious of it or not. We start from the time we're born, and we start to build a, a framework, a body of knowledge that helps us make decisions. And of course, the first people who teach us, the first people who give us this body of knowledge are our parents, which is a good thing. And parents start to lay down things for their kids. They help their kids know what's right and what's wrong and what's important. But, but here's the thing, even as parents help give their kids some stuff and try to help them build a framework, we know that not everything a parent teaches is right, right? Right? Now, I know a couple of you are already looking at your kids and saying, no, the preacher's lying right here. But no, that really is true. Okay. But pretty quickly, um, culture begins to also influence a kid, a child. Um, whenever you put a phone or an iPad or some kind of smart device in front of your kid, you are letting culture start to influence them. And, and I don't know that, you know, is this good or bad? It just is. And so culture really begins to influence and begins to give us something in our body of knowledge that gives us a framework about how to live. And then real quick after that, it uh, switches or it begins to be added to by our peers. And so our friends start to have a huge impact on how we live, on what we think is important. And friends really, um, you know, kind of teach us what is cool, what is not cool. In fact, from about age 6 to 15, your peers will have more influence over you than anyone else, your parents, culture, or even your teachers. And teachers have a role to play too, right? Teachers, you know, we start to get influenced by teachers and what they teach us and what they say is important. And there's some teachers we wind up wanting to please. And our parents are not out of the picture. No, no, no. Our parents are still in the picture. They're still trying to teach us. And culture certainly is still in the picture. And, and of course, friends still are there. And before long, we've got this wall of knowledge or this foundation of knowledge that teaches us how to live. We don't actually start making critical judgments about this till we're in our mid-20s. And in our mid-20s, we begin to realize some of the things our parents taught us were wrong. Some of the things that our, our teachers taught us don't apply. Our friends who taught us in, when we were in second grade that it was cool to eat different things, it, it, we find out it's not so cool, right? And, and, and so even we start to say, culture, do I really want to believe that? And so we start trying to reassemble this. So what does all this have to do with our message today? Let me give you the big idea right up front. You might want to write this down. The life teacher you choose determines how you live. The life teacher you choose is going to determine how you live. It's going to determine how you make decisions, where you steer your life, how you define success, what you will hold on to as a value. Now, the Apostle Paul in this scripture that we've just read was writing to some Christians in a place called Thessalonica. He had spent some time there teaching these people about Jesus. And I want us to walk slowly through this passage and see what Paul is going to teach us about how to live. So the first phrase says, we instructed you how to live. Two big ideas in those few words. The first idea is a teacher is required. Paul said, I needed to teach you about how to live. I needed to teach you about Jesus. 
Someone taught you how to live. All these different voices. And here's what we know. Someone teaches you about Jesus. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you probably have some conception of him. Somebody gave you those ideas. Now, let me tell you the problem when it comes to a teacher teaching you. Every person who wants to teach you how to live has a flawed idea of how to live, including yourself. Now, now think with me. How many of you have flaws? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, that's a flaw. You have a flawed personality, which means there's no way you can define perfectly how to live. Even if you're defining it for yourself, and all the people around you who want to teach you how to live, they don't have a perfect way to describe it because they too are flawed. And in fact, every person who wants to teach you how to live, every person who has an agenda for your life, probably has some idea of what success will look like for you. You have to decide something very important. And let me give you this sort of criteria to help you understand the teachers in your life. Does your teacher want something for you or something from you? Let's just go back here. Do parents want something for their kids or something from their kids? <laughs> Let's be honest. We do want something for our kids. We want our kids to be happy, healthy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you want your kids to fall in love with Jesus. But I also want them something from my kids, right? Because my kids are going to choose my nursing home. I want something from my kids. What about your teachers in school? Anybody ever have a teacher, high school, middle school, that basically what they wanted from you was for you to go into their class, sit down, be quiet. They didn't care if you fell asleep. They didn't even care if you learned anything. They were there marking time until retirement. Anybody ever have that teacher? I did. He taught trigonometry at 7.15 in the morning. Ask me today what I know about trigonometry. Nothing. Now, real interesting, right after trig, I had physics. And I didn't do well in physics, which is a good thing. In all my years of being a pastor, no one's ever come up to me and said, explain physics to me. Thanks be to God, I don't have to explain it. But you know what I knew? Mr. Stevens was his name. Mr. Stevens actually cared about me as a person. He was patient. He tried to answer my questions. He wanted something for me. He didn't just want something from me. So a couple of things. What if God was your teacher? What if you actually went and you said, God, will you teach me how to live? Because I don't think I can figure out how to disassemble this and put it back together and get it right. Now, if you let God be your teacher, you're going to need someone wise to help you make that connection. You're going to need to study the Bible. You're going to need to learn to talk to him. And you're going to need to learn to listen. I want to take a quick side journey, and then I'll come back. I promise. God has called some of you to be teachers. And more of you than you think. If you are a parent or a grandparent, you're a teacher. You know this? And are you wanting something from the people you teach or something for the people you teach? Some of you teach in a school classroom. Bless your heart. We appreciate you. 
Make sure you teach with as pure a heart as possible. That requires some spiritual work. We have people who teach life groups here. And if that's you, make sure you're teaching wanting something for your students, not something from them. Okay, that little piece is done. Let me get back on track. Here's the first thing Paul wants us to know. You need a teacher. And then in this one same little phrase, he says, we taught you how to live. This is the second big idea, this one little phrase. Literally, what this means is how to walk. I want you to understand, we in the United States educate people in fact retention. But fact retention is not true knowledge. True knowledge is about something that changes your life. The ultimate test of knowledge is not fact retention, it's life transformation. You need someone to teach you how to change your life. So what do we mean when we talk about life transformation? Well, life transformation is what happens when over time your life begins to change. One of the problems in American Christianity today is we focus too much on fact retention and we end up arguing about things that don't matter instead of looking at people and saying, hey, is your life really changing? Is Jesus changing your life? This is actually the goal of church body membership, to be part of a community of faith where you are constantly encouraged to undergo the life transformation that will give you a better life. Now, Paul, in another part of the scripture, uh, expressed it this way. In the book of Galatians, he said that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, that's life transformation, right? So let's just kind of do a quick test. Are you more loving than you were a year ago? Do you have more joy than you had a year ago? How about peace? Is life more at peace for you than it was a year ago? How about gentleness? Are you more gentle than you were a year ago? Uh, there's a word here, goodness. It can also be translated generous. Are you a gooder person than you were a year ago? How about a more generous person than you were a year ago? What's your checkbook say? You're more faithful than you were a year ago? More kind? How's your self-control doing? That's the way God defines how to live. And let's face it, those traits don't come naturally. Someone has to teach you how to live that way. And that's why you need to be part of a church body. That's actually why our mission as a church is to help as many people as possible take their next step toward Jesus Christ. We want to see change over time. So that this imperfect body of knowledge you've been operating with gets changed out for something that actually works. Now, Paul's going to sum this up, uh, this whole idea of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, in, in a simple phrase where he goes next. He says, 
that he wants to teach or he taught them how to live in order to please God. Now, why should that be your goal? Why should you want to live to please God? It goes back to that question. Does your teacher want something for you or something from you? Here's where a lot of people get God wrong. They think if they follow God, God will make them miserable. Now, just think with me. If God wanted you to be miserable, he could do it without you following him, right? So following Jesus must mean something else. Now, this is not to say if you follow Jesus, your life's going to be easy. You're not ever going to struggle. Not at all. What it is saying is that life with Jesus actually is better than using any other model of instruction about how to live. Would your life be better if you were more loving? I see some of you are not sure. Would your life be better if you had more joy? Would your life be better if you had more peace? Would your life be better if you were more patient? I see several wives elbowing their husbands. Of course it would. This is why we say we believe everybody needs to live like Jesus. I believe Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. And you say, well, I don't think of Jesus being happy. That's because there's something wrong with our definition of happiness. When we think about the happiest place on earth, we think about Disney World, right? But I want you to think about what we say is happiness. Happiness is getting in a line of traffic, paying for the privilege to park, to go and pay to enter an amusement park, going into that park, waiting in long lines for two-minute rides, paying $50 for a cheeseburger, buying souvenirs you don't need, and when the park closes, they run you out. Doesn't that sound like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness to you? I know some of you say, well, I've been to Disney World and it took self-control. I understand. Something's wrong with our definition of happiness. Rather than go to the happiest place on earth, how about following the happiest person who ever lived? How about growing a character like Jesus? That would please God. It would give you a better base of knowledge about how to live. So let me ask you this challenging question. Who are you living to please? I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Thornton. He taught pastoral care and counseling. Remember that, it becomes important. Um, and he told us one day in class that when he became a seminary professor uh, and he had published a couple of books, he decided to buy a farm in rural Kentucky. So uh, when he was done teaching on Fridays, he would go down to his farm and he would work, work all day, uh, all the rest of Friday, all day Saturday. He would come back, he'd be tired, he'd be exhausted, he'd be grumpy. And he told his wife one day, he said, I hate this. And his wife said, so why are you doing it? And he said, I don't know. And so he went to a colleague of his and said, you know, I'm a professor of pastoral care and counseling, and I don't know why I have a farm. And the guy said, well, let's talk about it. And they began to talk, and Dr. Thornton told us that his most vivid childhood memory was of his father being kicked off of the farm that his father owned in the Great Depression, losing the farm and having to move to town. And this friend of his, who also was a counselor, said to him, gee, Ed, you think maybe you're trying to please your dad 
by getting a farm and trying to make a go of it? Dr. Thornton said, I never thought of that. Here's the kicker. His dad had been dead for 15 years. You know what Dr. Thornton did? He sold the farm. Who are you living to please? It's really kind of amazing, isn't it? You can live to please your boss, your wife, your husband. I know a bunch of kids. They're people, they're trying to please their kids. Where do you want to eat, honey? I want to eat at McDonald's. We have to eat at McDonald's. Yes, they have a happy deal. You're trying to please maybe even a ghost from your past. Now, I know some of you say, well, that's not me. I please myself. You remember the old rock and roll song where the line was, you see, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself? Yeah. If you're nodding and saying, I remember that song, you're old. Let me tell you the problem with trying to please yourself. You got to figure out what pleases yourself. And most of us are not smart enough to be able to see a big enough picture to actually see this is what would make me happy. Instead, we follow the line of an old country song sung by Tom T. Hall who said, the secret to life was faster horses, younger women, older whiskey, and more money. Some of you said, I'd like to give that a try. You don't have to. Look around at people who pursued those things. How happy are they when they get to 70, 80? Did it work for them? This is why this matters. It may work in the moment. Does it work long term? So what happens if you say, well, I'm going to live to please God? Let me tell you the first thing you need to know, your life gets a lot simpler. Rather than have to figure out all of this, you just have to figure out this. Okay, what will make my heavenly father happy today? What will please my heavenly father today? So, so particularly if you're a believer, let me give you this great prayer. It goes like this. Heavenly father, my goal today is please you. My goal today is I want to please you. And some of you right now are freaking out because you're going to, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can do that all day long. Okay, let's break it down. How about the next five minutes you say, Heavenly Father, my goal for the next five minutes is to please you. And I can even tell you what it is. What you can do in the next five minutes to please your Heavenly Father. Stay awake and listen. Thank you for the amen back there. The rest of you not so convinced, but you're in church, right? You're here to hear the word of God. So how about staying awake? Listen, that would please your heavenly father. This is not hard. It makes life simpler when you want to please your heavenly father. Now, Paul looks at these people in Thessalonica and he actually says, you're getting this right. Look at what he says next in this phrase in verse one. He says, as in fact you are living. In other words, I'm trying to teach you how to live so you can please your heavenly father, and you're doing it. This is the equivalent of the coach giving you a slap on the back, of your boss saying, good job, of your spouse saying, you know, you were right. It felt good. You need someone in your life you can celebrate with. Someone in your life that when you get it right, when you actually are more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, that you can actually 
Go to them and say, you know, today I was so tempted to lose my cool, but God helped me be patient. Yes. And that person can go, good for you. This is why you need to be in a life group. Life groups are not just about Bible study. They're not just about prayer requests. They're also about celebrating victories. Hey, I got it right. One time this week, I got it right. Now, if you're a parent, let me just drop into your world for a minute. This is so important. You need to celebrate your kids' character achievements more than you celebrate their sports achievements and their academic achievements. Kid brings home an A, what do you do? Yay, I'm so proud of you. Kid hits a home run, what do you do? I'm so proud of you. How about celebrating when your child is loving? When your child is joyful? When your child is at peace? And just let me drop in. If you've got a child between 12 and 16, celebrate every moment they're at peace because there's not many. Celebrate when your child is faithful, gentle, kind. Celebrate when your child has self-control. Hey, mom, dad, you know, I was at this party. They broke out some beer. I decided to come home. I just am so proud of you. Right? Celebrate when your child is generous. If your two-year-old shares a toy, make a big deal of it. Because you know what gets celebrated gets repeated. So who do you need to celebrate with? Who's in your life you can celebrate spiritual victories with? Now, Paul is going to continue. He's going to say, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. This is Paul's big ask. He says, I want you to keep going. I want you to keep doing this. You're doing it. Well done. Now, keep doing it. Let it overflow. Let it just spew from you. So keep learning so there's life transformation so you can celebrate so you can continue to transform. You hear how he's doing? He says this can build on itself. This is the kind of base of knowledge that becomes exponential. It not only transforms you, it begins to transform other people. Everybody's got a next step. If you're here and you're breathing, you've got a next step spiritually. So keep doing it. Keep going. Now, my observation is people will get stuck. And the number one reason people get stuck spiritually is they're afraid. They revert back to that whole thing. They're afraid God wants something from them instead of God wanting something for them. And so they, they get this idea, hey, okay, I know that I'm, God wants me to follow Jesus. He, I know that he wants me to be his child, but I'm scared. I get that. But what would happen if your fear is wrong? What would happen if following Jesus actually was the best decision you could ever make in your life? Baptism, people think, well, what, oh, I just don't know if I can get up in front of all those people. What would you gain if you actually were baptized and you discovered the power of identifying with Jesus? Let me tell you the number one place people get stuck. Giving. I know somebody, there he goes, talking about money again. Listen, I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. 
The spiritual blood pressure medicine, med, uh, indicator in your life is your giving. And people say, I'm just, I just, oh, your fear takes over. And don't you remember Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive? Well, why don't you try it? Try it for 30 days. I'll make you a deal. You tithe for the next 30 days. If you don't feel something positive spiritually, I'll refund your money. Now, I'm not going to refund your interest, but I'll refund your money. How's that? Is that fair? Try it. Now, some of you think, well, that just sounds like some huckster thing. I want something for you, not something from you. When you face a roadblock, here's how you deal with it. You name it, you deflate it, and you leap it. You name it. This is what the real roadblock is. Most of the time, it's going to be you're afraid. You deflate it. Is that fear real? And then you leap it. Remember, we call it a leap of faith. You become convinced and you act on your conviction that going over that roadblock and being where God wants you to be is better than staying stuck on the other side of the roadblock. Be honest. How many of you are stuck spiritually? Don't raise your hand. How many of you are stuck spiritually? You need to name why you're stuck. See if that fear is real. And then leap over it and go where God wants you to go. Now here's the last teaching of Paul. Paul says, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Knowledge is experiential. We've said that. You need to take an idea and apply it to life. And Paul says, look, I taught you. You need to remember it. We taught you by the authority of Jesus. And so, remember how to live, please God, how to remember, remember that this should be exponentially growing. So how do we then apply this to life? How do we apply the teaching of this scripture to life? I'm going to give you five quick applications. You might want to write these down. Number one, you can say, Heavenly Father, be my teacher. Heavenly Father, I recognize you are the only perfect teacher. You're the only one who understands all of life. Rather than rest on all of this jumbled mess, I am simply going to ask you to teach me how to live. Number two, simple prayer. Heavenly Father, my goal is to please you. My goal, simple, I want to please you. And so your Heavenly Father might say to you today, okay, Today, we're just going to focus on one thing, just one thing today. Today, I want you to be more loving. Okay, well, what do I need to do? Well, I want you to think about your spouse and think about what they're going through and think about what they might need. Well, they might need their car washed. Then go wash their car. You see how this works? Make it your goal to ask your Heavenly Father what would please you. Your Heavenly Father may say, look, our goal today is be more joyful. I want you to name some blessings. Name some things in your life that I have given you that you just don't even think about. When's the last time you thank God for oxygen? Kind of essential, don't you think? Maybe God is going to say to you, look, today we're going to focus on peace which means I want you to write down everything you're worried about and give it to me. 
If you ask your heavenly father to teach you and then ask what will please him, your life will get a lot simpler. Here's the third thing you can do. You can celebrate a victory with someone. If, you're, if you are married, you're here with your spouse, you can go, when you leave the building today, you can go get in the car and you can say, you know, I just want to celebrate a spiritual victory in my life. I stayed awake for half of the pastor's message today. Or maybe you can actually say, because you're volunteering in VBS, when you get done, you can say to your fellow workers, hey, I just want to celebrate a spiritual victory. God gave me patience to get through this week. I didn't kill one child. Now, we don't, no, don't take that wrong. We don't kill any children during VBS, okay? But you need to celebrate a spiritual victory with someone because what gets celebrated gets repeated. And too many of us are not celebrating what God's actually helped us do in life. Here's the fourth thing you can do. Do you need to push past a roadblock? A lot of you have got a roadblock, you need to pass, push past it. You need to just say, okay, it's here. I'm not going to let it control me. I'm going to believe that what's on the other side is better than what I've got right here. And here's the last thing. Just ask yourself a basic question. Is your body of knowledge working for you? Is the way you have framed up how to live actually working? Now, my hunch is some of you are not followers of Jesus. And this is a real critical question for you to ask. Is it working in my life? And you might say, you know, it really isn't. Every day I'm just chasing something else and it's not working. Well, it's time to make a change. You can ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. You can ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. And by the power of his death on the cross, he can do that. And he will save you. And he will teach you a different way to live. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, can I just be honest? I don't think this is optional for us. We have to always be examining ourselves and saying, is Jesus really the foundation? It's a powerful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's no other foundation like Jesus Christ. He's the perfect one. He's the one you can trust. Because here's what I know. I know it's true for everybody, right? There's going to come a point in your life where your body of knowledge, your foundation, you, you, the way you have decided to live your life is going to get tested, right? Everybody knows this. It's going to get tested. There's going to come pressure. There's going to come expectations. And you have to figure out, can your body of knowledge hold up? If Jesus is your foundation, it does. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we look to you to be our one true foundation in Jesus. Teach us how to live. Teach us how to please you. Father, I want to pray for any today who they're really looking at their life and it's a mess and they realize that they have just listened to every other voice but yours. So I pray today they would accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
I ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.